The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. States have turned a blind eye on, on, this, on this phenomenon and not over the last years done enough to ensure that also civilians, also private actors that participate in armed conflict through digital means are aware of the rules that apply and that states ensure respect for these rules. I am Eugenia Lohtri, Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 24, 2023. Thanks to advances in digital technologies, it is now easier than ever for civilians to get involved in military cyber operations. From private civilian companies being involved in cyber defense, to individuals engaging in offensive cyber operations against enemy targets, the increased participation of civilians in armed conflict is a risky trend. My two guests recently authored an article outlining eight rules to guide the behavior of civilian hackers during war. Tilman Rodenhauser is a legal advisor at the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC. Mauro Vignati is a senior advisor on new digital technologies of warfare, also at the ICRC. We talked about what could happen if the principle of distinction is eroded and civilians lose their status, what limits governments should impose on civilian hackers conducting cyber operations in the context of an armed conflict, and the response so far from hacker groups and the cybersecurity community. Mauro and Tillman are speaking to us in their personal capacity, meaning that what they say today may not necessarily reflect the views of the ICRC. It's the Lawfare podcast for October 24, Rules for Civilian Hackers in War, with Tillman Waldenhauser and Mauro Vignati. So earlier this month, you both published an article that articulated some rules for civilian hackers during war based on existing international humanitarian law. So before we dive into what these rules entail, I think it would be useful to take a, you know, a short step back and run through what type of civilian cyber actors have been participating in war and in what ways. Right, so we have seen what has been called by one of your former colleagues, the civilianization of digital operations and conflict. So Tillman, do you want to get us started and, and talk a little bit more about that? Sure, I can do that. When we look at current cyber operations, we look at various types of operations. We still, of course, see state operations, and, and they're usually of significant impact. So the cyber operations during armed conflict conducted by the armed forces, by cyber commands. But what has struck us over the past years is, is a growing civilian involvement in such operations. And we, we see that at various levels. One that has been talked about a lot is the involvement of tech companies 
And some tech companies have been really vocal about how they have been involved in recent conflicts. But we've also seen an unprecedented number of civilians as hackers becoming involved and, and conducting, in a way, on their, on their own or in groups, cyber operations related to the conflict. So supporting one party or the other. And this has really struck us as something not necessarily new, but the, the dimension that we've seen is new. And that has essentially motivated us to look further into what are the limits for that? What are the rules that apply? Mauro, is there anything you would like to add to that? Yeah, as Tima said, so we are uh, we are monitoring, we are observing, I mean, the involvement of civilians at different levels. So civilians as person, people, and then we have group of hackers and then tech companies involved, as he said. And uh, But what, what we have seen is that the more focusing on on people uh, that are um, entering these spaces, that uh, we have uh, not just a quantitative uh, aspect, so the, the scaling, uh, the impressive scaling that this uh, this uh, phenomenon has taken, but also a qualitative uh, part on that. And uh, meaning with this that uh, um, people are taking into the COVID through um, cyber means, uh, digital means, also. Uh, thanks to the gamification of, of the operation. And what I mean here is that the younger uh, generation, they, uh, they are entering this space uh, kind of thinking this is similar to a video game where you can gain points, you go up in the ranking, and the, by creating this gamification is, uh, is, uh, is bringing even more younger people into the conflict. So uh, those are uh, worrisome aspects that we see uh, in this regard. And that's why also the rules are that we publish are uh, addressing and using a language that can reach out to younger uh, population. And maybe let me let me add one point. You know, we are of course analyzing the macro trends and we are looking at the operations at various levels. But about a year ago, I also heard a personal account of a hacker. Somewhere, you know, he associated himself somewhere with anonymous. But what he, what he reported is that he got really upset by what he saw on TV about ongoing conflicts. And so he thought, how can I, how can I take revenge for that? What can I do? And he started looking for vulnerabilities in the country that he considered as the enemy or as responsible. And he found such vulnerabilities and he exploited them. And he proudly reported in a podcast that he killed literally thousands of animals in a farm. And he, with hindsight, he, he even regretted it, but he also wasn't aware of the limits. He considered it a wild west where he can operate the way he wanted. And, and he afterwards spoke about it publicly in, you know, not expecting or not, not thinking about it. What he did is actually, I would argue, a violation of international law that states have an obligation to prosecute. And that really made us think, okay, they don't know the rules. So, so what, what can we do maybe to contribute to a, a form of to, to limits that also these people will accept? So Tillman, following up on that, I, I think that's interesting because there is a range of operations that civilians can be involved in that, and, and they might not understand the rules. So, you know, what is kind of the gamut? Of, of activities are these sophisticated are they not are they you know being done individually or in groups what does it look like in practice when civilians participate in conflict 
as you say, there are a range of activities, and I think Mauro will be best better place to to talk about that from a technical point of view. But we have the information that we get and what we see is that you have civilians individually participating in conflicts. At times they participate in groups or they they, they follow chat rooms or they follow other channels where uh, where operations are planned. So you you have various kinds of civilian groupings. You have some being more closely organized, maybe almost like what you would consider an armed group in you know in, in the physical world, but others also being much more loosely connected. And that's probably also one feature feature of the digital environment. Mario, do you want to add on the on the variety of operations? Yeah. What we have seen is that the, some of the groups that we are observing are focusing and targeting uh, military assets. Uh, but the majority of, uh, of those groups are more um, taking uh, and, and attacking uh, civilian assets. So the first part, the first kind of groups, they are targeting military assets or what we call dual use infrastructures. So, so uh, civilian infrastructure that is used by, by the military, by armed forces. And uh, they justify, they would like to comply to the rules and, but they justify the attack against dual use infrastructure because by taking down the, this kind of infrastructure, they are also damaging, disrupting uh, operation of one part of the conflict. And then the other, uh, the majority of, uh, of, uh, of the hackers and of, of the groups are targeting uh, civilian targets. And that's, that's the worrying part that we are um, seeing a conflict into a conflict where in an international armed conflict, uh, we don't have only two parties, two armed forces that are uh, confronting each other, but we have also civilians that are attacking civilians. And, uh, and this is uh, um, a, a new phenomenon that we are observing. There's a very good number of reasons why you wouldn't want civilians to, to be carrying out cyber operations during war. Could you speak a little bit of what, about what are some of the risks and concerns in these scenarios that you're describing? Yeah, we see, uh, we see this as worrying why, because... Uh, uh, civilian entering this space, uh, they put themselves at risk if they are participating in hostilities. Uh, they could be targeted by armed forces. They put also the environment around them at risk, so other civilians or infrastructure that are uh, that is closer to them. So that's why uh, we see this particular problem if uh, civilians are entering uh, this space. And this is probably something really important and, and where the specificities of the law of armed conflict come in. Because a person, like a, a civilian who engages in military-type operations, who participates in hostilities, that person will, depending on the operation, will lose their protection against attack. So that person is still a civilian, but that person may, in the in at least for the time, that he or she participates in hostilities, conducts their operations, will become a potentially a lawful target. And that means, under the laws of armed conflict, not only a lawful target for cyber operation, but also for physical operations. And if you think about hackers sitting in a country at war, there can be a real risk. Also, what, what Mauro just said, the machines they are using, the machines they're using, the computers they're using, they can likely then be considered as military objectives, again, making them potentially the subject of a lawful attack if all other obligations are respected. So there's a real risk 
that these people will be impacted, but also depending on the operations that their loved ones, people close by, may be impacted. I wanted to add one more point to this, uh, to this statement. What we're seeing is that uh, many civilians that are contributing to uh, those operations are not even sitting in the territory of the conflict. So even if they are doing cyber operations uh, in the digital space, they are sitting somewhere physically. And uh, many of them are sitting outside the territory of the conflict. And these create even more uh, tensions between uh, uh, states that are not involved in the conflict and, uh, and, uh, and states that are involved in the conflict. So the, the digital dimension adds a new, uh, new tensions in this respect. There's one other point about, about that under the law of armed conflict. Under humanitarian law, a combatant has in a way a privilege to participate in a city and a combatant is a member of the armed forces of a state. And if they participate in hostilities and they respect the rules applicable under international humanitarian law, if they are captured, they become prisoner of war, they will not be charged with a crime if they didn't commit a war crime, but only conducted operations that are lawful under laws of war. But if, if now a civilian does similar operations, that person, if captured, doesn't have the same privilege. So even for a civilian to attack something that is military, which would be permitted under laws of war, that person can still be prosecuted for that act if the person is captured. And again, depending on where the person sits, there have been cases where such people have been caught and have been charged with crimes and have been prosecuted for these acts and can have severe punishment. And unfortunately, you know, we are seeing more and more conflict. The world is getting more complicated. And, and this makes you know, this makes it no longer a hypothetical or just a thought experiment. Have you seen any of this come through in practice? Have states put out, you know, their positions about how they're going to consider civilian hackers that are participating in hostilities? How is this playing out? I would say we have seen different things. There have been states in the very beginning or there have been states saying that they do not want their citizens for a variety of reasons to take part in armed conflict, be it in the physical space, be it through cyberspace. And states have various reasons for that. Some states might be uh, motivated to make such statements to ensure respect for international humanitarian law. Other states see a real risk that such private operations can lead to what Mao said to, to an escalation of conflict, and they want to prevent that. Or others are concerned that such civilian hackers may actually disrupt or interfere with the operations that they conduct. But then there's also, and this is something that has concerned us and that is reflected in the article that we wrote, states have turned a blind eye on, on, this, on this phenomenon and not over the last years done enough to ensure that also civilians, also private actors that participate in armed conflict through digital means are aware of the rules that apply, and that states ensure respect for these rules. And that is something that we believe is incredibly important. I, I want to ask you a question about some of your reasoning behind the article. You know, Why do you think that international humanitarian law is the right vehicle for these rules, considering that there is no actual like, prohibition against hacking? Well, I would almost go by exclusion, because let, let's think about what law can or would apply. Of course, there's national law, and in most national law, hacking is prohibited. And if that was strictly enforced, then at least we would not have the same, the same amplitude of this, of the issue. 
You also have public international law with an obligation, what well, some will dispute it, but with a due diligence obligation. So that means that, that states shall not allow knowingly that their territory is used for acts contrary to the rights of other states. And so if that rule was respected, once again, uh, probably the problem would be smaller. But now let's think about the specific situation of armed conflict. If we have a non-international armed conflict, so a conflict between a state and an armed group, and civilian hacking is, is taking place here, then due diligence will not apply, likely, or depending on where the hacker sits, and national law is breached almost by definition. And if we think about an international armed conflict, usually then we move from the use at battle, so the due diligence question, to the use in battle. And these are then the rules of international humanitarian law. And here international humanitarian law is really the body of law under international law that is designed to regulate this, designed to be in a way a last, a last line of defense against acts of inhumanity, against targeting civilians at the time of conflict. And this is why, as the ICSC, we, we felt it was important to step up and, and to recall that these rules exist. So I want to turn us now to an overview, an actual overview of the eight rules that you propose. And I know there's a lot to discuss there, but I also don't want this to take our entire time. So I was thinking that what I'm going to do is I will read it rule. And as I do, if you could provide an example of this happening, how does it look like in practice? And then the impact that these actions can have. And also, you know, the reason why you considered it critical enough to be included in this in this list. And I just want to say that I reserve my my host privilege to ask any questions I want um, as we go through them. So Rule number one states that you should not direct cyber attacks against civilian objects. And I'm going to use my host privilege immediately and first ask you, how do you define cyber attack here? Look, a cyber attack is defined in international humanitarian law. But that's, of course, an excellent question that you pose. Because an, an attack in the, under the laws of armed conflict is defined as an act of violence uh, against the adversary, whether an offense or defense. And in the cyber context, that is, that is generally agreed to be operations that can be reasonably expected to lead to either injury or death of people or damage or destruction of objects. And so that is the definition, of course, that we followed and we also include in the explicitly in the rules to be, to be accurate in what we say. Thank you for clarifying. Now let's, let's go with the, the actual answer to uh, the, the rule, right? When we're talking about do not direct cyber attacks against civilian objects, what are those objects that you know are out of bounds? How do you think about what is civilian? And if, if you could just give an example of this, just to make it you know more tangible. Essentially, a civilian is by definition everything that is not military. So that means the vast majority of things that are um, that that are in society. And also a significant aspect of those that have been targeted by a variety of cyber operations. These are civilian objects. So think about, think about most governance ministries, most governance e-services, most companies. Think also about medical facilities, pharmacies, all of banks. All of them are by nature civilian unless they become a military objective or unless they are, for example, the Ministry of Defense, where it might be different. 
But in principle, in society, most things are civilians and they must not be attacked. And interestingly, you also include, although you do say arguably, you include data here. And, and that is, I've heard conflicting opinions about how do we think about data in, in the context of cyber operations. You know, can you explain a little bit more how this, this works in practice? So there is a long-standing debate about the status of data under the laws of armed conflict. And the question that, that lawyers tend to ask or that lawyers have to ask is under international humanitarian law, civilian objects are protected against attacks. So against operations that are, can be reasonably expected to damage or to destroy them. And other question is, is civilian data an object? And there have been different views on that. Traditionally, an object is something that is visible, that is tangible. But data is, at least to us humans, neither visible nor tangible. So there has been quite a bit of lawyering, lawyering around that. And different states and different lawyers have taken different positions. And I cannot actually tell you exactly where the law stands. And I cannot tell you whether under existing international law, data is protected similar to civilian objects. But I can tell you that if it was not, we would have a real problem. Because when you think about all the Think about archives of a government, of a company, of a humanitarian organization, traditionally on paper. And they were civilian objects, these, these paper files. If now all of this is digitalized, and, and it is, if you look at our societies, then why would the protection of, of the same value, of the same information, why would that no longer be protected? Then we had a real problem. No, Mauro, uh, I will turn to you with rule number two. Rule number two says, do not use malware or other tools or techniques that spread automatically and damage military objectives and civilian objects indiscriminately. Same as before, could you maybe offer a, a, you know, an example of this? What does it look like and, and why you think it's critical to have this included in the list? As you, as you see, we formulated this rule in a, in a simple way as uh, to explain the problem uh, to people that are not uh, are not uh, expert in the legal uh, in the legal framework. So what we want to say here is that the, we see more and more the use of wormable uh, malware, meaning malware that can uh, can expand and transfer to different assets uh, by self replicating, and uh, thus. Um, operators can lose control of those kind of offensive uh, capabilities. And uh, this could generate impact or what, what is said normally collateral damage uh, to assets that are most probably civilian assets or uh, also military assets that are not meant to be attacked. So that's why we formulated the, the, the rule this way by not entering the specific uh, legal language, like uh, um, talking about the, the principle of distinction, the principle of proportionality. So by explaining the rule this way, we think that we can uh, have a, a major effect on, on people understanding what, we, uh, what IHL is saying, what international military law is saying in this regard. No, let me let me build on that because I understand that you've been kind of doing the rounds and collecting feedback around these these norms. Do you see that that the use of this language is clear enough that there's been an understanding of of what exactly is meant by this and how it relates to legal obligations that that individuals may have? Yeah, we're presenting the rules at different cybersecurity and hackers conventions. 
Um, actually, I was this week uh, at a convention in Luxembourg called Act.lu, and we presented the rules uh, and we had uh, an engagement with the community asking what they uh, think about the, about the rules, if we are addressing the problem correctly, if we are, if we are speaking the right language to uh, the hackers. And uh, this was really interesting as we receive uh, uh, several feedbacks, uh, several uh, new ideas that we can uh, use to improve uh, the language and how we, uh, we get in touch with the community in, in this regard. So it's very important that we confront our ideas also with the, with the community of hackers to be able to adapt our communication to them, especially for the younger generation. And if I, if I can add one point to that, you know, of, of course, coming up with these rules, it wasn't Mauro and I sitting in an office and, and you know, just drafting them and, and publishing them. Of course, it started with Mauro and I sitting in an office doing that. But we discussed them with former militaries. We discussed them with humanitarian protection professionals. And we also discussed them with hackers, with people who, who actually do such operations. We collected their feedback and we, in that process, changed the formulations that we used in these rules quite a bit. And I can also give you, when we go further through the rules, we, we can actually flag a few points where that has really been obvious or where, where this has been reflected. Uh, yeah, here we'd like to, to add something. I mean, we receive uh, feedback from, uh, from the community. As I explained uh, before, we receive also the feedback from, from states, from armed forces, but also we receive uh, feedback when we publish uh, those rules uh, through social media. And this is very import important because we learn uh, a lot through uh, social media. And uh, someone uh, in, a, in a post remembered that in 1999, there was already a declaration from several um, hacking groups about the respect and the not entering the war with uh, the, the hacking capabilities. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the reward-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Tillman, let me turn now back to you for rule number three, which deals with the need when planning a cyber attack against a military objective to do everything feasible to avoid or minimize the effects that the operation may have on civilians, right? So what are some of the, the military objectives that, that you have in mind here? And what are ways in which one can minimize those effects? Like, what do you have in mind there? <laughs> and on this one, I agree, you know, that it's a bit of a mouthful, that rule. But the lawyers in the audience will, will realize that we actually simplified quite complex rules in, into that, into that statement. 
If you ask about the military objectives you have in mind, it can be communication systems used by a military. It can be supply lines of the military. It can even be weapon systems or other uh, other specific military objectives that the armed forces use in the context of armed conflict. But let me give you a concrete example of, of feasible ways to reduce the effects that such operations can have on civilians. So we were speaking to someone who, who was close to people who conducted related operations. And that person explained to us that when they had access to a system where they could impact the armed forces of you know of what they considered the adversary, they had access to the system, but they realized that they actually don't entirely understand what their operations in on the system, what impact it will have down the line, what carry-on effects it will have in the systems. And so it was explained to us that they restrained from conducting such an operation until they had the necessary knowledge, the necessary understanding, intelligence to understand what the operations will actually do and what the maybe also unwanted effects on civilians will be so that they can properly assess and and restrain that. And that was a person who probably had barely heard of international humanitarian law, but simply by having an ethical approach to such operations, that person made choices which I would I would see very much in line with international humanitarian law. Rule four, do not conduct any cyber operation against medical and humanitarian facilities. And I think this one is particularly interesting because I know that you've been doing a lot of work as well on a proposal for a digital emblem that would mark some of this infrastructure as out of bounds. So I, I how do you see that interplaying? And if you have any you know, updates on how that is going, if there's an more adoption on the digital emblem, I think that would be interesting to hear. Let me start with the law with one or two sentences, and then Mauro gets into the tech detail and the progress. So indeed, as you say, in the physical world, there is a Red Cross, Red Crescent emblem to show that medical and humanitarian facilities must not be targeted. And so a digital emblem that we are working on at the moment to develop it, that would give expression exactly to that rule, but in the digital space. So to pass the same message, to pass the same message as stated here in the rule that those facilities and operations must not be targeted. And I think, I think it has advanced quite well, right, Mauro? So on the digital emblem, so we're digitalizing the, the Red Cross uh, Red Crescent emblem. And uh, from a technical perspective, uh, we are advancing uh, the development by prototyping and testing the different solutions that uh, we are envisaging to uh, deploy. So at the moment, we are testing one solution uh, on the network in Geneva of the ICRC and another solution, the one of the John Hopkins University uh, in Washington, they are testing uh, their solution too. So uh, the idea is, and the goal would be in 2024 to be able to harmonize those solutions and uh, propose, uh, suggest uh, a final solution for the for the digitalization of the emblem. Now, rule number five states: Do not conduct any cyber attack against objects indispensable to the survival of the population or that can release dangerous forces. And I'm stuck here with uh, dangerous forces. What are those and uh, what impact could they have? I think look, that that's a legal term of art in a way. And it refers to uh, nuclear electricity facilities and to dams and dikes. 
And if you think about the opening of a dam, I think we're all very conscious of the devastation that can have. And while, of course, a dam can be opened by, by many means during armed conflict, cyber operations are one aspect. And the same with when you think about nuclear facilities, some of them have been targeted by cyber operations, including from hacktivists. And until now, fortunately, none of that has been successful. But we put this rule there because the impact is potentially devastating and significant. And do you see here, you know, like I could imagine that this ties in with some of the concerns about the unintended effects, right? Where you could be attempting to do something less damaging to some of the infrastructure that contains these dangerous forces. And then there's the unintended effect um, that ends up being much worse than than originally thought of or planned for. Is, is that a worry? Is that something you consider? I'm not an expert on how these infrastructures exactly run. But this is, of course, our, our fear. But I would, I would actually say that rule should be understood as not tampering with them in any way. And so even doing something small on a nuclear facility is really not what anyone with a sense of responsibility should do. So while, of course, there can be unintended effects, if we look at these type of uh, these types of infrastructure, the, the risk of causing significant harm and devastation is so big that uh, that best approach is probably to just keep the hands off. Now, rules six and seven have more to do with, you know, communication in a way, with informing or threatening to, to conduct operations or to spread terror. So rule six states do not make threats of violence to spread terror among the civilian population. Now, how is this a, a hacking you know, uh, something that a hacker would do? How is this different to many of the disinformation or, you know, hate speech issues that that we see occurring in conflict? In in a way, we're talking about the, the same problem. So we're talking about misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech, what is uh, at the ICRC is known as MDH. By recognizing that uh, messages of uh, AIDS and misinformation, disinformation are spread also by hacking into websites and uh, and providing those messages, uh, what we call the defacement and uh, and some kind of uh, techniques like that. So that's why we're talking about hacking and uh, and spreading messages of violence uh, through those uh, uh, those means. And if I can add to that. Yes, we are speaking here about incitement. We're speaking here in a way of what you said is, is the traditional yeah, types of information operations. But for instance, some of these some of these civilian hackers and hacker groups operate in communication channels. And in these communication channels, operations are planned, targets are distributed, their IP addresses or ports are made available, and operations are in a way coordinated against them. And if that is for instance, the presenting of civilian infrastructure, of civilian, of civilian objects, and to encourage everyone to go against them, to co- conduct cyber operations against them to cause harm, then uh, that is an incitement of an international humanitarian law violation. That is, that is what we are concerned with. Right. And just to clarify, that would be Rule 7, right? Yes. Perfect. And so the last rule is that you should comply with these rules 
even if the enemy does not. And I can imagine that that must be a hard sell sometimes for civilian hackers, um, understanding, you know, that reciprocity is not an excuse. How how are you communicating about this? Do you see any pushback against it? I, I've seen many comments after this came out where, you know, groups were maybe a little bit taken aback by the rules because what they want is to defend their people. So the concept of there is no reciprocity, no revenge, I, I could imagine would sound a little bit off. Is, is that true? I think you're, you're hitting a good point. And this is something that when we think about the, and it's not limited to cyberspace, if we think about the implementation of international humanitarian law, we think about about situations of armed conflict. We think about incredible suffering. We think about people having their fellow citizens, maybe they, their families being affected. And they will have a motivation and they will, they will want to take revenge. But states have set together after world wars, states have set together after wars of liberation to design rules that, that take this off the table. And they have done that for the motivation that that this justification of violence will likely result in a spiral of violence and a spiral of escalation that is of no good, that is of great danger. And so while, of course, I think everyone can relate to these feelings, it is legally off the table and it is something where the risk of escalation and of more violence is really serious. Now, I know that you've been, and we've discussed this briefly before, you've been doing some work socializing, communicating these rules to different stakeholders, including hackers, cybersecurity experts. But I wonder if there are any concerns or ways in which you could recommend for the civilians to undertake the legal analysis that might go into determining the status of their actions. I can appreciate that the language that you're using is more accessible, but there's, you know, tests and standards and different interpretations for how to think about attacks, how to think about the effects, what type of approach you're taking. How, how can the civilian hackers do that on their own? How can they be sure that they're respecting the rules? This was a this was exactly one of the questions that we received during the presentation uh, at the at the conference at the uh, cybersecurity conference uh, this week. We tried to formulate or reformulate. We we are studying if the formulation was correct uh, the rules so that uh, even people that have no knowledge, no legal knowledge, they could understand what we are talking about. So by saying, for instance, do not attack uh, civilian targets, uh, we, we think that uh, it's, it's kind of easy to understand what we're talking about here. So the first, the first part is to uh, make it clear that uh, we would like to use a language that is not a sophisticated legal uh, language. And then the second approach is, the second, the second part is approaching them to explain the rules. So the rules are out. But yeah, the, the interesting part would be to see if the community react and understand those rules and if we go uh, further to understand if the groups that are entering this space are understanding the rules. Are we talking the same language? But maybe I can, I can also add to that. And, uh, and almost if you allow me, push back a bit. If you look at the rules, do, do not target civilian objects. 
uh, do not use malware that will spread indiscriminately or do not target medical or humanitarian facilities or uh, objects containing dangerous forces, which in the italic text under the rule, we actually explain what, what, it, what it means. It's not rocket science to comply with that. And also more generally, with, with international humanitarian law, these rules were designed and negotiated and adopted by militaries, by government militaries mostly. And they're done in a way that they speak to military operators and they're not exceedingly difficult to implement. Of course, lawyers can dispute about, you know, the gray areas between rules and, and what exactly it means. But I would argue much of it is not all that difficult. And then to be frank, I've actually, I've seen some of the comment by groups on these rules that clearly suggested to me that they had some, some degree of legal knowledge. And we also know from discussions that some of them have spoken to lawyers to, to ask uh, what degree of accountability and responsibility they may face for the operations that they do. So it is, it is not out of scope to understand, to, uh, to follow these rules and also to gain some more, some more adequate understanding of some of the legal terms and concepts. Now, I, I want to take some time, a little time at least, to talk about the role that governments can play in advancing and promoting these rules. Your article also offers four obligations for states to restrain civilian hackers. What are, what are those obligations? Maybe I can speak about the obligations and more than rather about some of the operational measures. And that, that's really important because in the end, many of these private hackers and groups, they operate in territories controlled by states and including by states with functioning law enforcement systems. So there, there are various levels of responsibilities that states have taken upon themselves to restrain private actors that operate, including in context of armed conflict. And the first one, of course, lawyers will be familiar. It is if, if a private person, including private hacker, acts on the instruction, direction, or control of a state, the state is responsible. And that also means the state is responsible to ensure that these people comply with the applicable law because the state would be responsible if they didn't. And so... The idea to send private individuals or volunteers and instruct them to carry out operations in violations of international law in order, um, you know, to deny responsibility, that is, that's legally not viable. And building on that, the International Court of Justice has also stated that states must, must not encourage private persons or groups to operate or to violate international humanitarian law. And so instructing private hackers, civilian hackers, to violate international humanitarian law through their operations is similarly off-limits. But then there's also more that states have committed to do under the Geneva Conventions. They have committed to ensure respect for humanitarian law, at the very least by persons operating on their territory, and to suppress IHL violations. And what that means is, in order to suppress violations, you need to have the necessary laws or regulations that either criminalize them or otherwise make them off limits. And then that has to be enforced. That can be done with administrative levels or through penal prosecution, depending on the gravity of the act. And so states have taken that obligation upon themselves. And the idea of turning a blind eye of what civilian hackers do from their territory in violation of international humanitarian law is, legally speaking, not a viable option for any state. Yeah, so at the moment we have published uh, the article with the eight rules. Well, we are now um, internally checking if uh, we can 
uh, institutionalize uh, those rules and, and producing something that uh, would be a, a more suitable would be in a more suitable format for the purpose uh, of the protection and uh, and uh, by spreading the message that uh, we would like uh, that hackers receive. So that's that's something that we are we are at the moment discussing internally to see how to improve this message uh, at the ICRC level. Now, unfortunately, you have also received some pushback from some of the big groups. I think some of the first responses that I saw were groups saying that there are no rules in war or that the rules are just not viable and that breaking them is unavoidable. So how how do you think about changing those hearts? How do you think about convincing them of of the value of the rules? It's really interesting that you mentioned the immediate reactions from from some of the groups because at least at least part of those who had immediately or initially doubts about these rules and the viability of those have actually within days turned around and said, no, actually these rules make sense. And whatever we believe about their legal status and they're welcome to argue with us about whether this is law or whether this is not law, we are fully convinced that this reflects international humanitarian law and obligations that they have. They consider them to be relevant and they expressed their intent to follow them. So that has been actually a significant change within days of, of the debate being started. But it's also important to, to think about where the ICRC, the International Red Cross, comes from. We, we are operating in 100 countries affected by armed conflicts. We operate in countless conflicts where we have states opposing armed groups or armed groups fighting each other. And the point or the, the reality that many groups may not be aware of international humanitarian law or do not fully understand it or even oppose it, is nothing that is entirely new to us. And we have worked on making it known, making it understood for centuries, and also working maybe through other ethical or religious frameworks. I worked with a colleague on, it, it's, it's a bit remote, but I worked with a colleague on how is international humanitarian law reflected in Islamic law, because there are groups that rather tend to follow Islamic law. And when Mauro mentioned some hacker groups and ethics that may exist there. We also have to look at how do these rules, how are these rules reflected in, in ethics or approaches that hacker groups have developed and can we build on that in order to achieve in the end restraint and protection of civilians. So what do you think caused that change of heart between you know the first very public you know reaction against it and then uh, and then change in position? What was it? Yeah, I think that primarily we should focus on on the groups that uh, publicly are saying that they will not respect the rules, and we have some on them, and uh, that's why we have to focus specifically on those groups. We have also probably to check if our language is adapted to those groups. Are we doing something wrong in our expression because uh, those groups are reacting differently, or we have to take also in account different uh, cultural. Uh, environment where those groups are are acting. So there is probably also other uh, other characteristics that uh, typify uh, different groups that we have uh, to take into account. If I can add to that, we actually hope that at least for some groups, they understand that these basic rules may actually be also a reflection of them their own ethical and and their ethical thinking, their own humanity, not to target 
for instance, civilian objects or so civilian, the civilian society of whom they consider their adversary. So it may be that realization. It may also be that none of them operates in isolation. Maybe there are other groups or actors that, that influence them and that may, may push them towards better respect for such rules. But it could also be, you know, st statements have been made publicly and it may also be that they realize that this is, this is the right thing to subscribe to. And whatever the motivation is, what is really crucial for us is that the next step is implementation. That means implementing it into their own rules, into their own operations and making sure that everyone who associates with their group also respects these rules. I think I would be remiss not to mention one of the other big developments uh, the last few weeks, where the ICC prosecutor announced that his office would start collecting and reviewing evidence of cyber misconduct that may amount to one of the offenses under the ICC's jurisdiction. How do you see your rules interplay with that? I think if I can start with a really important point, and that I have to put that clear and squarely, is there's no link whatsoever between the rules that we put out and the prosecutor's announcement. There is essentially a firewall, I would even say a Chinese wall between the works that the different institutions do. So that's a clear, it is coincidence and timing that these things come out. But you know, if you, if you take a step back, I think it is a realization of the potential human cost of cyber operations. The ICC has spoken to that for years, and we've also time and again repeated that there are rules that apply. And implementing these rules means, of course, respecting them and also ensuring accountability if they're not respected. That starts at home. That starts with each group and each state's doing that. But there's also an international accountability system. And if, if we agree that the potential human cost of such operations is significant and that there are rules that must be followed, then uh, it is also only a logical consequence that an international criminal law institution such as the ICC is considering or is announcing that they will also look into such operations. And there, we know that there's academia and civil society following this closely, and we have to see how that develops in the coming years. Now, before we wrap up, I wanted to turn it back to you and see if there were any last remarks, final thoughts that you want to leave our audience with, anything that you wish we had discussed, but we didn't get time for. The floor is yours. So probably I would just I would just like to thank the community at large. Um, I think that the hacker community and the cybersecurity community they help us a lot with the feedbacks and the ideas so far. So this has this helps us to improve the rules, to improve the way we address uh, this problem to the community. So a big thank to uh, to the community that helped us so far. Yeah, and building on what Marvel just said, I think for us, these, these eight rules for hackers and the four obligations for states, they, they can only be a starting point. They're a starting point for conversations. They're a starting point for hopefully real impact in, in the real world. And I guess we have almost been surprised over the last two weeks about the reach of them. There have been probably, there have been many groups who actually saw these rules, reacted to them. We've been approached by government officials who, of course, saw them and, and uh, supported them and, and seek a conversation with us on them. And as Mauro just said, the ICT community has been really interesting and, and overwhelmingly positive in their feedback. So we understand this as a starting point and we really, um, we really hope that furthering that conversation 
will translate into an impact, which in the end leads to a better protection of civilian components of society against, against cyber operations, not only by private hackers, but also by government hackers. I think that's a great sentiment to, to end the conversation in. Mauro Tillman, thank you so much for joining me. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having us. The Lawford Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawford Podcasts by becoming a Lawford Material Supporter at patreon.com slash lawford. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patihau. And your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Go Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.